Will you turn with me to Romans chapter 4? We've been going through the series on the tabernacle. We're almost done. We've gone piece by piece and bit by bit through the tabernacle itself and looking at all the furnishings and all the tapestry. And We've not looked at all of it, but we've looked and kind of taken a bird's eye view of it. All the while... Uh, looking for Jesus because he's displayed in every nook and cranny of it. We've come to the seventh piece of furniture. There are seven pieces. And we've come to the one that we hang all our hopes in. And that is that there's a mercy seat. There is a mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And not only that, but there's a mercy seat and that mercy seat is sprinkled with blood. It wouldn't be a seat of mercy unless it had blood on top of it. That's why we've titled the series that we've been going through, Not Without Blood. Because the Bible says that when the high priest went one year, one time a year, into the Holy of Holies, to the most holy place, he dared not go in there without blood. He would go in once a year, the Scriptures tell us, not without blood. And we've talked about the bloody scene that is the tabernacle, that it's a bloody place. There's blood all over the place. There's blood at the bronze altar, and it's a flow of blood that goes all the way up to the inner throne of God, God himself as typified by the holy place, the most holy place, where we find the mercy seat. And we shared last week that in Romans chapter 4, when David was speaking in verses 7 and 8, in celebrating the blessedness of a man to whom God does not credit his... Um, is sin to him and he forgives him and his lawless deeds are forgiven. That we talked about last week, and we'll wrap it up, God willing, this morning, that what David was celebrating was when he was quoted here from Psalm 32 in Romans chapter 4. He was celebrating the Day of Atonement. We talked about that. But that's a picture of the Day of Atonement. And of course the Day of Atonement is the picture of the Day of Calvary. And we shared that last week. And we looked at those two verses. So let's look at them again. And we're going to back up and we're going to go to Romans chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. So with, if you're physically able, will you stand with me right now while we read God's precious word out of reverence and respect for Him? Romans chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 5 through 8. But to him who does not work... But believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Here's his celebration, quoting from Psalm 32. He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. You may be seated. Thank you for standing up. You'll recall that last week, when we looked at these two verses in 7 and 8, we were looking at them from the lens of the Day of Atonement. Just by way of review, and we've talked about this many times before, once per year, there were seven feasts in the Jewish calendar. This was number six or number seven. It was the most important one. It was a day of atonement called Yom Kippur as well. And that time, once per year, the high priest <clears throat> would go and make a sacrifice of a bull for his own sins and that of his family. And then he would carefully 
According to a specific prescribed order in the scriptures, he would carefully prepare to enter into the most holy place that he was able to go into once per year. Now again, we talked about the fact there's only one priest that could do it. It was the high priest. All the other priests in the order could not go in the most holy place. Only the high priest could do that. And when he entered in there, that specific priest, that is a picture of the fact that there's only one priest that you and I have who advocates us, advocates for us and for the Father, and that's Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the only one who could go in. And he did indeed go in. Hallelujah. Then he would take two goats. Remember we talked about it. Two goats. And one goat would be the scapegoat. And that's the goat where the priest would lay his hands on top of the scapegoat, scapegoat, thereby symbolically transferring the sin of the nation, of the, of the Hebrew people, to that goat, symbolically. A symbol of what God would one day do when he crowned his son with thorns on Calvary's hill. And he put the curse that was imposed upon us through Adam and Eve's sin and passed down to all of humanity. He put the curse, he put, imposed the curse on his son, crowning him with a crown of thorns. And that curse was talked about in Genesis chapter 3 as the fact that your labor would be with thorns and thistles. It would be difficult for you. It was God's judgment upon Adam's sin. And that's symbolic of the fact that Jesus Christ took the curse upon himself. And the scapegoat then would be run out of the, uh, of the uh, camp. And he would run out into a desolate place, never to be heard from or seen again. That's what it says, you'll recall, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And we talked about the fact that that word forgiven is translated from a Greek word which means to send off or to send away. It's the same word. It could just as well have said, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are sent away and whose sins are covered. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. So when he says, Blessed are those whose sins are sent away or forgiven, he's talking about the scapegoat there. That's the scapegoat. All right? Then the other goat that was used was the one that was cut and bled in the throat. His blood was taken in a basin, and the high priest would take that basin and walk into the most holy place. He would go to the holy place and then into the most holy place beyond the veil. And he would take the blood of the goat and he would spread it over the mercy seat in hopes that that would appease the righteous judgment of God. In hopes that he would emerge out of that place after having done that, symbolic of the fact that without a word said that we know of, he would walk in there in fear and trembling, knowing that his life and the life of the nation is at stake, and he would walk into that most, inner, that most holy place, and he would spread with his finger and sprinkle with his finger over the mercy seat the blood of that goat. We talked about it last week that when he came out, there was rejoicing all over the camp. And the reason was is because they said, we get to live, we get to live. Sacrifice accepted. God's righteous judgment has been appeased. It was done right. The right goat was chosen. The high priest did it just exactly according to protocol. He did it just right. And when he went in there, he came back out and God said, satisfied. And that's what the word propitiation, you'll recall, when the Bible speaks of the mercy seat in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is our propitiation. He's our mercy seat. Propitiation means satisfaction. That God was satisfied with the blood of His Son. And thereby we'll never, as believers who repent it toward God and have faith in Jesus Christ, will never have to suffer the wrath of a holy God because He suffered it in our place. And so therefore, when it says whose lawless deeds are forgiven... 
This is the scapegoat. When it says whose sins are covered, it is the blood of the second goat and his sins were put over the covering, which is the mercy seat in the most holy place. So he's celebrating the Day of Atonement, a preview of the coming attractions. And we know that both of those things happened on Calvary's Hill, that Jesus Christ took our place there. And when the Father took the thorns and put them on his head, he was crowning him with the curse of sin that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And he became a curse. This came up a couple of weeks ago, and we've been batting forth, some of us in here, talking about this. And we've been looking at it through the lens of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. Will you go there with me? Turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let's look at this business of the scapegoat. Let's look at this business of the scapegoat and in combination with the goat whose throat was cut. This perfect work of redemption that Jesus made and did for us. Can I say this parenthetically? And we've talked about this before, but it needs to be repeated. The issue in the Christian life is never, ever whether or not you and I got it right. The issue in the Christian life is whether or not God got it right. It's the confidence that God, through His perfect Son, His sacrifice did appease God's righteous judgment. That He is indeed the one that God said He would send. That He is the Son of the living God. That He was raised from the dead three days after He died. That He went up and ascended to the Father's right hand. Whereby we look for His imminent return where He'll come down on earth and bring righteous judgment on this earth and rule and reign forever. It's whether or not He did it right. And Alex, He did it right. We've never been right all along. It's not whether or not I walked down the right part of the aisle or said the right prayer or said it just in the right way and I went to the right part of the room and I did this just right and I looked this way and I did this and I did what everybody told me to do and I filled out the card and I filled it out right and I didn't get any errors on it. I put my email address on there. Everything was just right. I got it just right. I got it just right. Friends, it's got nothing to do with whether or not you got it right. It's got to do with the fact of whether or not you've repented toward God and placed faith in the one who did. Hallelujah. If there's anything beyond that, it's works. It's nothing that we've done. We lay ourselves at the mercy of God through the activity of His Son. And there we rest. There we rest. And so what happens? It's one of the greatest passages of Scripture on the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And Michael shared it with us. Michael looking at their house not too long ago. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Look at this through the lens of the scapegoat. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What an exchange. What a deal. What a savior. Think about it in terms of the scapegoat. Listen to me carefully. Jesus Christ on the cross did not become a sinner. doesn't say he became a sinner, but he became sin. Now I want you to think about this for just a minute. The Bible says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Does anybody know what that word dwelt means that we talked about? That you could just as well insert another word. What was it? Tabernacle. That Jesus Christ 
became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelled among us. The Word became flesh. Jesus Christ is the infinite God-man. He's God who became a man. He's equally God and equally man. Now, as God, as God, the Scripture tell us that not only He is incapable of sinning, He can't even be tempted to sin. Did you know that? The Scriptures tell us that He can't even be tempted to do evil. And He does not tempt one to do evil. Let me give you a little bit of biblical evidence of that. It's really cool. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, the theme of Matthew is that He is the Son of the, that he's the Messiah, that He is the uh, King of the Jews. That's the theme of Matthew. Mark, the theme of Mark is, is that He's the suffering servant. That's the theme of the book of Mark. The theme of Luke is that he's the son of man, that he became a man, that he did become a man. And not only is he the savior of the, of the Jew, but he's the savior of the Gentile. And then John is, the theme is that he's God. Deity. Okay? The temptation accounts are in Matthew, they're in Mark, and they're in Luke. But there is no temptation account in John. And the reason the temptation account is missing from the Gospel of John is because John shows you to be God and God can't even be tempted with evil. So this is not the deity part here that took upon and became sin. This is the man part. Jesus became a man. And God took my sin and your sin and transferred. He, like the, like the high priest on the Day of Atonement, he took his hands and he laid them on top of the brow of the head of his blessed Son. Now this had to happen, and here's why. Listen for this for just a minute. God, God could not have any righteous basis for imposing judgment on his Son unless our sin was placed upon him. God doesn't just punish sin for the fun of it. God doesn't just impose judgment because He can do it. God imposes judgment because He's just. And it was a just thing for Him to punish His Son because mine and your sin were placed upon Him. Hallelujah. And then it says it was taken away. I have four small children. And those of you who have children, you can relate to this. We have our share of spills. It's amazing. It seemed like when I was just living there at the house by myself and I spilt something, it wasn't nearly as hard and it didn't get nearly as, it wasn't nearly as pervasive as what it is when my children spill something. It seemed like when they spill something, it goes from the kitchen into the living room, down the hallway, into their room, into our room, every bathroom. It just goes all over the place. It beats all I have ever seen. Y'all can relate to that, can't you? Those of you who have children. And so they'll spill something, and we've had our share of spills, and, and, you know, and you, you've been down on the floor, and so have I, and we've been down there, and we've been wiping up the spill. You, remember, you know how you do. We've got a whole closet full of towels that we used to use that are, that are appointed just to, for spills. That's all they're for. We've got more of those than we do the ones we wash with. And so we've got a whole towel, and they're there to absorb spills. Well, you know what happens when you absorb a spill. It goes all over the place, and there it is laying all over the floor. You grab one of the towels, 
and you get it as wet as it can get, and it absorbs all, as much as you can get of it, hoping that it's going to get most of it. And you absorb. But here's what happens with that towel. The very moment that that towel becomes saturated with whatever was spilled, orange juice, whatever it might be, milk, these are the number one candidates. Is the minute that that towel becomes saturated with it, it is of no use to get up the rest of it. You notice that? I mean, you, I mean, you just go ahead and take the towel and might as well go ahead and throw it away, do whatever you're going to do with it, because it can only take up and soak up so much. Right? You and I were born into sin. The Bible says that in our, in the, in our mother's womb, we were conceived in iniquity. We sin because we were born sinners. The Bible says through one man sinner entered into the world, Adam, and death through sin. Alright? Thus death spread to all men. It spilled out all over the, all over the rest of humanity because we were in the loins of Adam. His sin became our sin. The entire human race was cursed. You know that. This is what the Bible teaches. And so we all, they got spilled all over the place. And we are absolutely absorbed in it. I can't expect my God to accept my best 15 minutes of living in His sight, and neither can you. No hope alienated from the promises of God. The Bible says that we were born into the kingdom of darkness. He's transformed us into the kingdom of light. The Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins and He hath made us alive together with Him. No capacity to relate to God whatsoever. Only recipients of His coming judgment looming over us, patiently enduring, granting us repentance and the faith to believe. All of that's the work of God. None of that's the work of you and I. And we were sin-soaked. As much as I would like to and think that I would do any, and I would do anything for my children, I cannot take my children's sin. And the reason I can't take my children's sin is because I'm no good, just like the spill, when it gets saturated, when that towel gets saturated, it's no good to pick up any more sin because it's saturated with itself. See, I'm full of it. I can't take and absorb the sin. I cannot remove that off of that kitchen table or that kitchen floor for anybody else because I'm soaked in it. And it's kind of like what Jesus did on the cross. In that, the perfect, sinless Savior who has no sin whatsoever with pure blood, with ample resources with the favor of God absorbed everything that was spilled on the kitchen floor when Adam sinned. He took it upon himself, every bit of it, as if he'd committed it. And when he did that, he absorbed all of it himself and ensured us that one day, one day, having been delivered from the penalty of sin, now how's that symbolized? On the Day of Atonement, being delivered from the penalty of sin, how is that symbolized? Anybody? What's that? How does, but what act took place? That symbolize, what, what act took place on the Day of Atonement that shows that our penalty for sin had been paid for? Huh? The goat? 
The goat that got his throat cut. That took care of the penalty of sin. He got his throat cut. The penalty. His blood was taken into the most holy place. The penalty of sin was taken care of. But the scapegoat, the scapegoat, watch this. The scapegoat points to the fact that Jesus absorbed all of our sin on the cross, was punished as if he had did it, had done it, not only to remove the penalty for sin, but watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this. When he sent that scapegoat away, it was a symbol of the fact that when God one day crowned and coronated his son with a crown of thorns, because he became the curse. The other scapegoat symbolizes, goat symbolizes the penalty was paid for. This one symbolizes that Jesus absorbed our sin, like that towel absorbs everything that's on that kitchen floor, thereby setting us free from guilt. We've talked about the word justified. This ought to make us, this ought to put a new step in our walk. This ought to change the way we live on Monday morning. This should impact our lives on a daily basis. This should be something that we would want to bust out of the seams to tell somebody that the word justified, and we've talked about this time and again, but friends, don't forget it, that when God says through the blood of Jesus Christ, He has freely justified us upon belief, that means that we are declared before God not just forgiven. Yes, forgiven. We are declared before God not pardoned. Yes, pardoned. But we are declared before God not guilty. Amen, Al. Amen. 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 A billion times over. Amen. Hallelujah. To say anything less is to downsize or mar the atonement. To say anything less about it is sin. To not come into agreement with the record of God regarding His Son written by the Holy Spirit, enacted by Him making good on His promises, is heresy. It is sin. It's an affront to the Holy God. And it is a block to holy living. And the gratitude that we should walk in every single day Think of the most, think of the acts in your life as a believer, if you are a believer this morning, that you're most ashamed of. Think of the season of time in your life that you're most ashamed of. Does anybody have any of those? Think of them. Here's what happened. And this is not in the sweet by and by. This is in the nasty now and now. Upon belief, did you hear it? Upon belief, right then. Right then, when you said, yes, I receive you as my Savior and Lord. I'm a lost man. I ask for your mercy because Jesus, I believe you, died on the cross for me. When we put faith and belief in God's precious Son and repent of our sins upon belief, we are declared by a righteous God in the Supreme Court of the universe not guilty. Hallelujah. 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 So not only through the atoning work that Christ did on the cross are we delivered from the penalty of sin. We're, we have the hope. It's a fixed, Chad, and it's a secure hope that one day, one day, we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin itself 
And the reason we are is because in the, in the mind of God, it's already been taken away. In the ensuing time period between the time period in between in which the penalty was satisfied, was the penalty was enacted upon God's precious Son, and the time period in which when we are ushered into His presence in glory, we still wrestle, we still wrestle with the old man that hangs around and tries to wield influence and tries to control our lives. We still wrestle with that guy. But in the meantime, in between the time between those two points happen when we are delivered from the penalty of sin and then the hope that we have that one day we're going to be delivered from His presence. In that, in, in that middle time frame, we've got a big 10 cent Christian word that we use for that. It's called sanctification. It's a journey whereby God's conforming us into the image of His Son. In between those two points, God said, okay, now I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. He's going to be in you, with you, and upon you. He's going to empower you for holy living and for service. He's going to be with you. He's going to comfort you. He's going to seal you. He's going to secure you. And He's going to settle you. He's going to do all of those things. He's going to empower you. He's going to be with you in the ensuing time period. I've put my mark on you. You are mine. Hallelujah. Let me say this to you and share this with you. The gospel is not a standalone proposition. And what I mean by that is, is the gospel is not just some creed. The gospel is not some philosophy or new way of living. It does lead to a new way of living. It is a new way of living. But it's not those things. It's not just an order of beliefs that we subscribe to. Otherwise, we'd be involved in religion. The gospel is somebody. And it manifests itself not in just belief in God, but the union that that belief secures and leads to. I am His and He is mine. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The effective work of the gospel is the greatest work that's ever been enacted or perpetrated on the face of this earth. It is a cause for rejoicing and brothers and sisters, it ought to ooze out of us and share with others by the way we live, walk, talk, and act. It is the gospel. Hallelujah to His name. And so what does David go on to say? And we'll close after this. He says in Romans 4, it says this. Romans 4, verses 7 and 8. Look what it says. Remember, Jesus did not become a sinner, but He did become sin. He human. The human part of him did. He took upon our sin. He absorbed it as if, he, as if you slapped down a brand new towel on a big spill. And it absorbed every bit of it. He absorbed it. He took upon it. And it's gone. And now you and I are declared by a righteous holy God is not just forgiven, not just pardoned, but not guilty. The word justified can be said, and accurately so, that it means just if I'd never sinned. Wow. Wow. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, sent away, taken on by Christ whose sins are covered, spread over the mercy seat in heaven, where our great high priest literally himself went 
and not with the blood of goats and bulls, but his own blood spread across the mercy seat of heaven. And God said, sacrifice accepted. And he sits at the Father's right hand and all he's waiting for is the Father's nod to go get those who were redeemed because they were justified upon belief in his Son. Hallelujah. What does the Bible say about the gospel? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Can I, say, can I tell you this? Just from my personal experience, it took some doing for God to do all this for me. But he did it. And it's powerful. And it's effectual. It works the moment you believe. Hallelujah. 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 That word power is the word from which we translate the English word dynamite. You could just as well say it's the dynamite of God. To everyone who believes, not achieves, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, it is the power of God. Now look what it says here. This is where we'll wrap it up. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now see, David states it in another way that's different than the way it was celebrated earlier. Look what it says. Up, uh, look, let's look a little bit earlier. It says in verse 3 of the same chapter, for what does the scripture say? Using the example of Abraham. When Abraham was saved, it says Abraham believed God, went to the right part of the room and prayed the prayer and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, period. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not accounted as grace, but as debt. It's very obvious that if you work for something, Al, if you come up to me and say, Brother Lindsay, I want to wash your truck because it's dirty. And it is. And I say, Brother Al, Brother Al, let me pay you for it. And you said, no, Brother Lindsay, we're good friends and we are. And I want to wash it for you as a gift. I want to do it for you. And I said, Brother Al, look how dirty it is. You don't know what you're getting into. And Brother Al, it's cold outside. No, I want to do it for you. And we wrangle and wrangle and wrangle. And finally I say, Brother Al, at least let me give you a dollar. And he says, okay. Just to appease you, I will give you a dollar. The moment I give him a dollar, the moment he goes and washes my truck, it's no longer a gift. It is a wage, albeit cheap. It's a wage. But if I say, no, Brother Al, I'll receive. I will let you wash my car. And Brother Al washes it thoroughly and cleans it up, hands me the keys and says, Brother, that's free of charge. That's grace. And he says, look what he says here. But to him who does not work, but believes, not achieves, on him, he believes on him who justifies, there we go again, who declares not guilty, what kind of people? What kind of people? What did Jesus say? I did not come to call the righteous to repentance. I came to call the unrighteous to repentance. Which includes us all. His faith is accounted to righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man and to whom God imputes righteousness. So look how he says it. He said God imputes or credits righteousness and then he turns around and celebrates the opposite. That is, blessed is the man in whom God does not impute sin. So here's the deal. Listen, look at the end of the deal that we get. He says right there, 
Blessed is the man in whom God imputes righteousness. Chris, I'll use your example because you'll probably forgive me. Very moment, the very moment, no matter how vile and wicked and rebellious your life had been, and it had been, so had mine. The very moment that you put faith in Christ, the very moment God declared from heaven, you are a righteous man. Have you acted unrighteous since then? Yeah, me too, buddy. But you know what? It doesn't make it any less true. Amen. God declares you're righteous. You know what he also did at the same time simultaneously? He declared that I am not going to credit you with your sin because my son absorbed every bit of it. Pardon me, but what a deal. Sign me up for that. That God says, upon belief, this has all happened simultaneously. This is not waiting until the sweet by and by. This is the nasty now and now. Upon belief, right then, right then upon belief, you and I as believers, if you're a believer here this morning, were credited with the righteousness of Christ. And David celebrates that the opposite was also true. And that is you are not credited with any of your sin. Praise God. Hallelujah. Can I ask you a question? Do we have anything greater to share on the face of this earth? Does anything matter beyond that? Wendy's over there ministering, her and a team of people ministering to uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center. And I think about this often. And they're over there trying to meet practical needs, and they should do that. That's the, that's the doorway. That's the access. That's the love that they get to see Christ. But if it just stops there, and it doesn't stop there because they're about the gospel, it's got to go on to the fact that no, no, it's not just this, that God worked redemptively on your behalf to reconcile you to Himself through His Son. And if you repent of your sins and put your faith in Him, He'll forgive you for everything you did to get yourself in this mess. And He will set you free immediately upon belief. Hallelujah. Amen. We've got all these philosophies and all these ideas that men come up with in order to change behavior. And Joshua, the only thing that changes somebody's behavior is the new birth. But belief precedes change. Not the other way around. And once we believe, not achieve, and we receive, we become the righteousness of God in Him no longer credited with our sin. Pardon me, but hallelujah. Amen? What a Savior. That's immediately true of you right now as a believer. Now what are we going to do with that? Are we going to listen to the world and their threats and intimidations to keep our mouth shut? You know how the world operates? You know how the world operates. And Brian, you were talking about it a while ago. You know how the world operates? Here's what they say. I always say this when I marry people. I love to marry people. I'm a real, I just love the whole thing about marriage. I love to do marriages. That's one of the most funnest things I do. And it's sorry English, but that's one of the funnest things I do as a pastor is marry people. I love it. But I always tell them during the ceremony, I say, here's what, here's the deal. The world is all right with you as long as you have compartmentalized your life, Chad. If you say, okay, I've got a social life and I've got a work life, I've got a family life, I've got an um, education, I've got a, I'm a student, I've got, you compartment those lives. And then one of those compartments is your relationship with Jesus. And here's the deal they've cut with us. And we've bought into it. Keep that one to yourself or we're okay with you. 
Just keep that one over here. Just confine it. We're okay with you. We're all right with that. Now it's starting to not become all right. But at least, you know, just if you'll just keep it there. We bought into that. When the Bible says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you will also be revealed with Him in glory. That Jesus Christ is not just over here. He's not first in my life. He shouldn't be first. He should be the center of my life. Amen? And that He permeates in everything that I do. I'm not about sharing the Gospel. You and I, through our union with Him, a covenant relationship with Him, a love relationship with Him, Ray, are not to share the Gospel. We are to be the Gospel. And when you are the Gospel, you will share the Gospel. Amen? I'm praying that God, in this next year, in 2011, there's some changes coming on the horizon for us. And you know it. And America's never going to be the same again. We've gone down a path that's going to be probably irreversible. Christ is coming back. But our hope is not in our government. Our hope is in Jesus. Because our kingdom and the one that we live for is not of this. Amen? I'm just passing through.